Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathiam, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishantham, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and... He gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord, fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, 
Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sariah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anna, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is God's word. Well, evening, everyone. If you could keep your Bibles open at Judges chapter 3, which we've not met before. My name's James. I'm on the staff team here. But should we pray first? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we praise you that you're a God who speaks to us. And we pray that you'd give us ears that are willing to listen this evening. Father, whether we've heard these stories many times before or hearing them for the first time, we pray that your spirit would help us understand and believe and trust you, the God of our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, human beings seem hardwired to love stories of salvation. I was looking this week at the the list of top-grossing films of all time, the films that have earned the most money, and it's just amazing how many of them, the major theme of these films is salvation. Whether it's the Avengers who are saving the Marvel Universe from Thanos, or Harry Potter saving the magical world from Lord Voldemort, or Frodo and Sam saving Middle-earth from Sauron, or if it's Olaf and his friends saving the world of Frozen from an eternal winter. It seems like many, many, many of the main films that we like to watch are full of salvation. That is, we spend literally tens of billions of pounds watching to and listening to stories of salvation that are just made up. But even more true stories of salvation, we love listening to them. I don't know if you've uh, realized in the news over the past couple of the weeks, it's been the, the year anniversary of the, the rescue of the um, football team who got stuck in the, the caves in Thailand. And uh, there was a lot of media attention of that at the time. It was two whole weeks they, they spent in this cave and finally divers went in and pulled them out and rescued them. And it's extraordinary scenes of watching people get rescued. We love stories of salvation. But 10 times in the New Testament, God is given the title as Savior because the Bible is a book all about God's salvation. And it's a theme that builds up all the way through and is seen no more clearly than in this middle section of the book of Judges. It's a section all about salvation. Now, if you were here last week, we began looking at this book of Judges. I said last week that the kind of main theme of the book is meltdown. It's a book that documents the spiritual meltdown of God's people, Israel, as they've come into the promised land. And last week we saw that the compromised obedience led them into this cycle of meltdown. But as we get into the middle section of the book, from chapter 3, verse 6, through verse 7, to the end of chapter 16, what we get to see is how God works in the middle of this meltdown and brings salvation time and time and time and time again. Even as the people spiral down in their disobedience, God keeps on coming again and again with his salvation. Um, I think there's a map that might come up on the screen. Here we go. There's a map 
in the white boxes, you don't see the names, but the white boxes show where all of the 12 different judges that come up in the middle section of this book come. And you see they're scattered all the way around the nation of Israel. See, the, the judges are not kings who unite and rule over the whole nation. They're, they're kind of localized chieftains that arise in different parts of the land. And they bring salvation for a moment, and then they die, and the spiral continues again and again. Thanks for the map. But this book, the, the middle section, is basically an anthology of stories full of God's salvation. And they have much to teach us about the salvation that God has brought to us if we're a Christian this evening in Jesus Christ. If you have your, your service sheets on the back, there's a, an outline which we're going to work through. There are two points. The pattern of salvation, which is the story of Othniel in verses 7 to 11. And the pleasure of salvation, which is the story of Ehud. And we're going to work our way through those two this evening. So if you have your Bibles, look down with me at chapter 3, verse 7. And we're going to firstly look at Othniel and see the pattern of salvation. So let's have a read again. Verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject to eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, as you look through that story, you'll notice that there's not very much color, if you like, to the story. It's mostly just a series of statements that give us a skeleton of what happened. And it's really important because it's a pattern that's going to repeat itself again and again throughout this middle section of the book. It shows us that the skeleton, the, the outline of what God's salvation is, it helps us to see what the essence of salvation really is all about. And I've summarized it in this statement. If you're taking notes, this is the, the statement to write down. It's this. Salvation is God acting to rescue us from his judgment for his rest. Salvation is God acting to rescue us from his judgment for his rest. And we'll see that pattern again and again and again, all the way through the book of Judges, but it's here clearly in the story of Othniel. And we're going to work through each part of that statement. See, salvation is when God acts. So did you notice in the story of Othniel how again and again the Lord is the main actor? So if you look down, verse 9, the people are in distress. They've been subject to this king of Aram for eight years, and all they can do is cry out. They literally just cry out to the Lord. But notice that he is the one, verse 9, who raised up a deliverer. The Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, verse 9. And then look at the deliverer, verse 10, 8. The spirit of the Lord came on him. At the start of verse 10, it's God who is empowering the deliverer. And then partway through verse 10 as well, it is the Lord who gave the enemy king into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. See, the Lord raised up the deliverer, the Lord empowered the deliverer, and the Lord gave the deliverer victory. Again and again, it is God acting. All the people do is cry out, God acts again and again to bring salvation. Salvation is when God acts. If you've ever been in a pool when the lifeguard has had to get into action, you'll know what I mean. See, when a lifeguard sees someone drowning, all the drowning person could do is flail around and perhaps cry out. And what the lifeguard does is gets off the seat runs, jumps in the pool, grabs them, pulls them to safety. The lifeguard doesn't 
get a manual of swimming and throw it to the person who you can't swim and say, here you go, try, try and learn how to save yourself and then you'll be able to help yourself get out of the pool. The lifeguard doesn't grab them above the surface and then sort of go, okay, I've helped you a bit, now it's over to you again. No, no, the lifeguard acts decisively, enters into the pool and brings complete rescue to the people. And that's what we see in the story of Othniel. God is the one who acts sending and empowering and bringing victory to God's saviour. Salvation is not something that people do for themselves. The Bible is not a book full of self-help salvation. The Bible is a book filled with God's salvation, him acting in history. And you see that again and again throughout the Bible and this book of Judges. God is the one who's acting in salvation. But God is acting to save the people from his judgment. Just look down at verses 7 and 8 and you'll see that this is the problem. Verse 7, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharim, to whom all the Israelites were subject for eight years. See, the people had began worshipping these other gods, the, the Baals and the Asherahs, they were the local Canaanite deities. You'll remember last week that because of their compromised obedience, they'd left all the people in the land. And so now they started worshipping these gods. And the Lord is angry. That's what it says. His anger burned, verse 8, because they had rejected him. Now, at first glance, you and I might think that this is, this is quite a petty thing. Why is God so angry? Surely they should be allowed to kind of express their religious feelings however they like. But there are lots of problems with thinking like this. Let me tell you two. One, these Canaanite gods led the people to do wicked things. If you, you remember last week, for those who are here, the Canaanite religions encouraged child sacrifice, for example. God had been patient for years and years and years and years, and he had judged the people because of their wicked deeds from worshipping these Canaanite deities. But now the Israelites are doing precisely the same thing. Having embraced the Baals and the Asherahs, they are now acting in the same evil way. But, but more than that, worshipping other gods is an act of gross unfaithfulness. If you just... Um, Flick back a page to chapter 2, verse 17. Just listen to how it's described. It says this, The people would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. It's strong language, isn't it? That they prostituted themselves to other gods. Because the relationship that God wants with his people is like one of a marriage covenant. See, marriage works as an exclusive relationship. That's kind of the, the point. Within the confines of marriage, it's entirely appropriate for a husband or a wife to be jealous that that marriage remains exclusive. It's not okay for the husband or the wife to act as a prostitute at the weekends. It's, it's not okay. And it would be right if the husband or wife was angry about that sort of behavior. They can't say, oh, you should just be more tolerant and allow me to express my feelings. No, no, no. It's not okay with an exclusive marriage covenant. And that's the sort of relationship that God wants with his people. He wants an exclusive marriage covenant, one of complete faithfulness. And so when the people of Israel start worshipping the Canaanite deities, the Baals and the Asherahs, they are breaking their marriage covenant with God. And so it's not petty or angry for God to be angry with them because of that. No, his anger burns because they're rejecting his covenant. And just like he had sent the Israelites to bring judgment on the, the Canaanite nations, so now he sends 
Cushan Rishathain, the king of Aram, to bring judgment on Israel for rejecting him and breaking the marriage covenant. And you'll see this all the way through the book. The problem that the people face is the judgment of God. Just look, if you will, at chapter 3, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Or again, chapter 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. Again and again, all the way through the book of Judges, the problem is that the people are evil and God is bringing judgment upon them. Judgment is the problem. And so salvation is always from God's judgment. It's God acting in history to save people from his judgment. And you'll see what the purpose is. It's for his rest. If you just look down at chapter 3, verse 11, see what the outcome of God's salvation, Othniel, who he raises up to rescue them, see what the, the outcome is. So the land had peace or rest for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Or again at the end of the story of Ehud, chapter 3, verse 30. That day, Moab was subject to Israel, and the land had peace, rest, for 80 years. See, God wants his people to enjoy rest. It's summer holiday season. Many of us will be heading off for our summer break to have rest. And it's that moment of getting off the plane and leaving behind all of the frustrations and annoyances of work and stepping out into the sunshine, probably, and enjoying that moment of oh, rest. I'm here. I don't have to think about all of the things about work anymore. And perhaps get to enjoy the relationship of friends or family who are with me. And that's what God wants for his people. He wants that the days of frustration, the, 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 the pains to be over, and for him to enjoy and for the people to enjoy rest, the relationship restored. And so the pattern of salvation we see in Othniel and all the way through the book of Judges is this, God acting to rescue his people from his judgment for his rest. And if you want a simple summary of the Christian message, it's exactly the same. God acting to rescue his people from his judgment for his rest. See, God has acted in sending Jesus Christ into the world to die on the cross and rise again. It was God's act. It was a, an act of him, not something that we do, that we help ourselves to get out of the problem. And it's to rescue us from his judgment, from the eternal hell that awaits those who reject him. And it's to rescue us for his rest, the heaven that he has prepared eternally for his people. God has acted to rescue us from his judgment for his rest. And it's of vital importance that you and I are crystal clear about what this is. See, this skeleton is here at the start of the section in Judges so that you'll be able to spot the pattern again and again and again all the way through it. So we're clear in our minds what this pattern is. And it's the same if we're Christians today. We, we need to be crystal clear on what this pattern of salvation is. Because in a, a post-Christian society which we live in, it's so easy to get fuzzy on what is actually the Christian message? What's it all about? And God wants us to be crystal clear that it's him acting in history in Jesus Christ to rescue us from his judgment hell for his rest, heaven. But the truth is you talk to lots of people and lots of people would say that our greatest problem is something different. It's not God's judgment. Our greatest problem is financial whether it's our need to get more money or other people's need to get out of poverty, or, or, or the greatest need that we have is political. That is, we need someone to solve Brexit, or, or we need someone to solve the, the evil dictators that are out there in the world. Or our greatest problem is educational. We just need to, to better ourselves as we learn more about how God wants us to live. Or it's health. We need to be cured of this sickness, or other people need to be cured of that disease. 
we think these are the main problems that we face. And of course, Christianity has something to say about all of those things. But if our greatest need, if our greatest need had been financial, then the story of the Bible would be very different. It would be about God raising up an economist to bring us into, out of poverty and into um, wealth. If our greatest need had been political, it would have been about God raising up a politician to rescue us from tyranny. If our greatest need had been about education, it would have been God raising up a teacher. If our greatest need had been health, it would have been about God raising up a doctor. But when you read the Bible, none of those things are what God raises up. Ultimately, he sends a savior because our greatest need is to be rescued from God's judgment for his rest. And so God sent a savior to rescue his people And this is the pattern again and again and again through the Bible, and it culminates in Jesus Christ. And I just hope that we as a church can be crystal clear on this. If you're here and you you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, don't leave tonight and and not be clear on what the message of the Bible is. Don't don't leave not clear on that. Come chat to me or someone else on the the staff. We'd love to. It's so important that we get the, the skeleton structure. What's going on in the Bible is God acting to rescue people from his judgment for his rest. So in Othniel, we see this pattern of salvation. But then we move to the story of Ehud, which is in verse 12 to 30. And this is where we see the pleasure of salvation. Because if the first judge, Othniel, helps us to understand with our head what the the structure, the pattern, the skeleton of salvation is all about, the second judge, Ehud, should help us to feel with our hearts just how good this salvation is. You'll see it follows the same structure as we saw with Othniel. So verse 12 to 14, the people do evil and the Lord brings judgment on them. Verse 15 to 29, God raises up Ehud. And then verse 30, the land has rest. But what's new is all the additional color that's added to the story. And it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be a fun story. As we listen, we're supposed to have a smile on our face. We're supposed to be laughing as God brings this wonderful victory. Now, 21st century British humor might not quite be the same as 11th century BC Hebrew humor, but I hope you'll see as we go through that this is supposed to be a story that makes you smile and laugh, and we get to enjoy what God has done. So let me walk you through the story. I'll point out the the important bits as we go through, and hopefully we'll get to see something of how enjoyable this is supposed to be as we go through. So let's, let's have a look at verse 12. It says this, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So at this point, Eglon, he is painted as this powerful, mighty, unstoppable leader. He has brought an alliance between three different groups, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites. There's this great big... Um, alliance. And he captures Jericho, which was one of the Israelite strongholds. This is the one that God had given them first as they entered the land. And so he has humiliated them by taking back this city. And he rules them for 18 long years. I mean, there would have been children who were born, who grew up, went through school, and applied for university, who all they had known was the reign of Eglon. He looks like this mighty, unstoppable enemy. But let's see what God does. Verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Now, in contrast to Eglon, this mighty warlord, the deliverer whom God raises up looks very weak, and he looks very feeble. 
So his name is Ehud. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin means son of my right hand. And the right hand is the place of strength and honor. And that's exactly what you think you need if you're going to defeat the mighty warlord, King Eglon. You need someone who is strong and mighty. But Ehud, well, he's left-handed. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means his right hand was restricted. So he's saying, the son of my right hand has a restricted right hand. It may mean that he literally was disabled or paralyzed in his right hand. No one quite knows. But the point is, he doesn't look like this mighty deliverer that you would expect. He's not one of the Avengers flying in with a superhero cape about to rescue the day. No, he is little Ehud. He is little Ehud, son of my right hand who can't use his right hand. He looks feeble and weak, the very opposite of Eglon. But the Israelites sent him with the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. It may be because he just looked so weak and feeble that they thought, well, we'll send him and Eglon won't worry about that. He won't be threatened. But Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, Eglon would have demanded the best of the food each year, the best of the harvest. And so Ehud comes up with this plan. He sort of gets this small little sword. He hides it under his um, under his clothing, and it's on the wrong side, so he, hopefully the guards won't spot it. doesn't look like a very, a very cunning plan, really. You'd expect them to notice it. But we finally meet mighty King Eglon, and we're told one thing about him. We're told he is a very fat man. Now, the name Eglon, it, it literally means calf. So he, he, he's like a cow. And the point is, as the tribute comes year after year after year after year, what it's saying is, Eglon is this fat cow who's been stuffing his face over and over with the tribute, becoming this very, very fat man, and hasn't realized that steak is on the menu. He is fattening himself up for the slaughter. That's what's going on in the text. Now let's see what happens. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. Now, did you notice Ehud doesn't strike immediately? He, he kind of delivers the tribute, then he goes a little way back to Gilgal. He tells everyone, leave, leave, leave me, and I'll go back to Eglon on my own. So he's looking the most weak he could possibly look. He, he arrives at um, King Eglon's palace, and how gullible is Eglon? I mean, he doesn't notice that the sword, he kind of, oh, a secret message, I really want to hear this. Okay, everyone go away, you can come into my palace, and it'll just be me and you on, on, the, on, our, on our own. No one's going um, no to cause any, car, any harm here, are they? And Ehud says, I've got a message for God. And what is the message of the God of the Bible towards King Eglon? Well, it's like a comic book slow-mo. I don't know if you noticed as, as Rachel read. If you look down at verse, the end of verse 20, as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. If you can find me a 12-year-old boy who doesn't find that hilarious, I'll be surprised. It's supposed to be this, this moment in the film where finally he is vanquished and the sword goes in and he's beaten. But there's still an escape that needs to happen. Ehud has killed Eglon, but he's got to get away. And so let's see what happens. 
as the king rose, oh, that's the wrong bit, verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner palace, in the room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. Now, you might expect that mighty King Eglon would have a, a slick operation going on in his castle, but it's kind of more like 40 towers, isn't it? You see, the, the servants are kind of escorting Ehud out of the, the castle. They're sort of taking their jobs very seriously. He needs to get out, so we've got to make sure he's out, and they're waiting around for the king to be, to be done, and they sort of think he's, he's going to the toilet. They can smell something that doesn't sound good, and no one wants to disturb him. And it's sort of, you open it. No, no, I don't want to be the one who opens it. You open it. No, 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 I don't want to open the door. I don't want to get in trouble. You open it. And it's sort of back and forth. And they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. And as they've let the assassin walk out of the city, they open the door and the camera pans to their face and you see the look of total shock. Their Lord is dead. And they've let the assassin just walk straight out. Meanwhile, Ehud's had plenty of time to escape. He summons his army and wins a wonderful victory from verse 27 onwards. He arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. And the story has humor for everyone. Whether you like clever puns on names, whether you like surprising character reversals, whether you like colorful characters, comic slow-mos, or toilet humor, there is something for everyone. And, and the point is, you can imagine that the, the Israelite family sitting around, and all of them find this hilarious, and they have a smile on their face, and they get to sit there and enjoy, this is how God has saved us. And the point is, you're supposed to smile and laugh and say, look how God has humiliated this mighty, oppressive, powerful enemy and made him look so silly and foolish. The story could have been told in the same way the story of Othniel was told, just as a skeleton, but the narrator has added in all this color so that we might sit there and enjoy and laugh and smile at the victory that God has given. If you've ever been at a sports match and you've been there while your team is winning a massive victory, You'll know that if you watch football like I do, football fans, they just start to laugh at everything. If your team is winning 7-0 with 10 minutes to go, everyone just laughs at everything. It's just funny because you've humiliated the opposition. And it's that sort of thing that's going on. Look how God, in his salvation, has humiliated his enemies. And we as Christians today are supposed to enjoy the fact that the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ is a humiliating victory. You see, at the moment when Jesus Christ looked weakest as he, as he hung on the cross dying, it looked like he was being humiliated. If you've ever read through the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, one sound that you'll hear over and over again as you go through the crucifixion accounts is the sound of laughter. You find that the guards mock Jesus as he hangs there on the cross. You'll find that Herod mocks him. You'll find that the chief priests and the elders of the people mock him. You'll find that the crowds mock him. Even the robbers who are crucified next to him mock him. Everyone is laughing at Jesus because he looks so weak and so foolish as he hangs there on the cross. He spent his time saving others and he can't even save himself, they say again and again to him. 
And yet, the Bible would tell us that at the moment of greatest weakness and humiliation, Jesus was in fact winning a humiliating victory over the most powerful and oppressive enemies that humankind has ever known. Those of sin and of Satan and of death. Just listen to how Paul writes it in Colossians chapter 2. He writes this, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, as you look at the cross, you think Jesus is being made a public spectacle of. Everyone is laughing at him, and yet what Paul says is, no, that's not what's going on. Do you see? He is actually making a public spectacle of sin and of Satan and of death. I mean, just think about it. Could there be anything more humiliating for sin, which writes down a record of every single time that you and I have been unfaithful to God? Pages and pages and pages of charges written, books compiled, ready for that final day of judgment where sin can bring them out, put them on the table and go, ha ha, you're guilty. And yet one day sin opens the book and finds every one of those charges has been wiped out. There is no more charge left. Jesus, by his death on the cross, has got rid of the power of sin. Could there be anything more humiliating for that than that for sin? Could there be anything more humiliating to Satan, who, whose words of accusation and temptation are powerfully destructive? They're fired like rocket launchers into our lives and cause havoc everywhere. And yet Paul writes that Satan has been disarmed. His words have no more power. They're no longer rocket launchers. They're like those, have you seen the, the little water pistols that clowns have and they fire them and out pops like a flower or something? It's like that. that. That's the power his words have in the lives of Christians today. Oh yes, they're still there, but they come with no power. Satan has been humiliated. And could there be anything more humiliating to death with its 100% record, its arms have taken in every human being who ever lived. And yet as Jesus Christ dies, three days later, he walks out of the tomb. Death cannot hold him. And Jesus says, if you trust me, you will never be held by death ever again. Death humiliated. Sin, Satan, and death humiliated at the moment when it looked like Jesus Christ was being humiliated. And if you're a Christian, you're allowed to, dare I say, you're supposed to enjoy that. You're supposed to enjoy that sin and Satan and death have been humiliated in Christ. You're supposed to take time to allow yourself to smile and to see just how good that is. I remember when I was um, at, at university, we um, had a, every week a university events week where the, the Christian Union would put on a whole load of talks so that people could come and hear about Jesus and find out about the Christian message. And at the end of the, the week, um, we were sitting in a room and a number of us were very discouraged. We were sitting there glum, we were sad, because one of the events just hadn't worked. It basically tanked, no one had turned up, and we were, we were a bit sad. And we sat there all feeling miserable. And I remember that um, an older Christian guy walked into the room, and he saw that we were all just sitting there absolutely miserable. And he's like, guys, why are you miserable? And at that moment, what I really wanted was an arm around the shoulder to say, there, there, you did a really good job, and look at all the positives. But he didn't say that. He looked and he said to us, why, why are you looking so, so sad? He said, I don't want to give Satan the satisfaction of seeing me like that. And I was really frustrated when he said that. I was like, that's not what I want to hear. And then as I thought a bit more, 
I realized what he was saying. He was saying, you're so fixated upon this moment that you've forgotten to lift your eyes and just see what Jesus has done and see the whole story of salvation that God has worked. And Satan, he, he thinks he's got this little victory over you here, but do you see? God has humiliated him and sin is gone and Satan has been disarmed and death has been overcome. And you're supposed to enjoy that. Don't sit down and be fixated upon just this moment. Lift your eyes for a second and see and enjoy what God has done. And I wonder if for some of us, this is something we need to hear again and again and again, just to be reminded of it. That sometimes in all the problems and and the mess and the chaos of our lives, which are real and the Bible has things to say into their pain, Yet sometimes we do just need to lift our eyes for a second and remember the bigger story of what God has done. How he has humiliated sin and Satan and death at the cross. And if you are a Christian, there are no more charges against you. If you are a Christian, Satan's power has been disarmed. If you are a Christian, death will not have the last laugh in your life. Jesus has won a crushing victory at the cross. And it's good for us to spend a moment and to lift our eyes and to see that. I guess for some of us, as we think back on Judges chapter 3, we want to spend time just getting clear in our heads exactly what salvation is, that God has rescued people from his judgment for his rest. And for others of us, we'll need to, having heard that lots and lots of times, we'll just need to take a moment this week to, to sit and enjoy and to smile and laugh at what God has done, see the bigger story. But the Bible is a book about salvation, We see that over and over and over again, how God has rescued his people, and we're to know that and to enjoy that. And maybe this week, take half an hour to sit down and read through one of the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus. Take half an hour and just sit there and see it and enjoy it and understand it again so that we might trust him more and more each day. In just a moment, we are going to have the Lord's Supper Scott's going to come up and lead us in that. And the Lord's Supper is both proclamation and celebration. As we take the Lord's Supper, we're both proclaiming this is what salvation is, that God has acted and sent his son whose body was broken and blood shed so that we don't have to face God's judgment. It's both proclamation, but it's also celebration. It's deliberately a meal that we take together, that we look forward to the time when we'll be in heaven and sin will be gone completely and Satan's power gone forever and death will have no more hold over any of us. And it's a meal that we take together and we celebrate that. So as Scott comes up in a moment, let me lead us in a prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of our salvation. We pray as we trust in Jesus Christ that we have been rescued from your judgment for your rest. Please help us to see that and to know it and to enjoy it. And as we share the Lord's Supper now, help us to proclaim and to celebrate what you have done in Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.